I remember my mom wilding out one day. She was just like, you don't have to be in the front of the, all those police officers. And I'm like, yo, mom, this is my job. Yeah, this is what I do. <laughs> What's going on, y'all? You have just tuned in to the Black Shutter Podcast. On this show, I invite black photographers, filmmakers, editors, and creative business folks to discuss their experiences and share their wisdom. You will hear about their work, their challenges, and their inspirations. My name is Idris Talib Solomon, a creative director, photographer, and filmmaker based in Brooklyn, New York. So if you dig photography and you love the culture, keep your mind open and your headphones locked. This is the Black Shutter Podcast. This is episode six of the Black Shutter Podcast. Our guest today is an Alexia Foundation recipient and staff photographer at the Pittsburgh Gazette. While at the Gazette, he's covered protests surrounding the death of Antoine Rose at the hands of law enforcement. He's covered the Tree of Life mass shooting, which earned him and his team a Pulitzer Prize in photojournalism. Heavy stuff. I've never covered a story involving death or murder, and within his first year as staff photographer, he's covered two extremely traumatic events. Today, he shares his story of how he ended up in Pittsburgh, what it's like to be part of a Pulitzer Prize winning team, and how he copes with his role as photojournalist. Michael Santiago, what's going on, brother? Welcome to the Black Shutter Podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Of course, of course, man. This conversation is long overdue, long overdue. Yeah, we've been trying to make this shit happen for like a good two weeks, and then life, and then motherfucking the Black Plague and the apocalypse <laughs> happening at the same time. <laughs> Seriously. For the, all right, for those tuning in, right now it is... Uh, middle of March, and we are currently, you know, in our caveman mode, you know, doing the social distancing due to this COVID-19, got everybody on lockdown, so what I better mean, way they make use of this time? Man. Almost, right? People still out there running around crazy, like like partying and licking toilet seats, and yeah, it's folks on some other right now. Yeah, like um, the, the governor of uh, Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf. He just pretty much today just locked down everything. It was like anything that's not life essential is on lockdown. Um, so, you know, he put out a list and of course, you know, newspapers is we we on you know, we on that list so we get to go wander around. So, you know, God forbid this place does go on like a full military lockdown or some shit, like we're still gonna be out there doing our thing. Yeah, man. I mean, I keep it close to home for now, but you know, yesterday I took my son out to uh, ride on his scooter to get some fresh air and to get some exercise. And for the most part, it just, I, neighborhood feels unfazed. It feels like normal, but the streets are just a little bit quieter, you know? Yeah. It's definitely something in the air. Yeah, for real, for real. I mean, I think for me, like, the, the, the biggest thing that I've that I've seen is just a lot of businesses and coffee shops and restaurants just, like, on total lockdown. I mean, like, most places, uh, they're open for takeout. But, you know, the chairs are up and stuff like that. And that's super unusual, you know, driving around and seeing, um, you know, driving past gyms and seeing all the treadmills, like, empty and stuff is just weird, you know. Um, one thing that I have noticed, though, man, is, like, hella people just running everywhere. Um, and that's, you know, that, that has to be because all the gyms are closed. So people need to run. So they're just out there running now. Which is a good thing, right? If It's, it's one of those things where you look around globally, and you start seeing that a lot of different societies, there's a lot of health benefits from people actually having to stay inside. Like the uh, air quality in China 
is improving drastically. The water quality in Italy is improving drastically because humans are not out there just with all this extra pollution, man. So it's, it's a real crazy thing. But, you you know, you mentioned, like, the streets are, are quiet and people are out running. Like, you're, you're coming from, you're calling in from Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, yeah. What's going on out there, man? What's the, I mean, I know you are a photojournalist at the uh, Pittsburgh, help, uh, remind me of the paper. Uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. The Post-Gazette, right? So yeah, yeah. what's life like right now on out on the ground for for you and other photojournalists? Um, I mean, right now, it's just everything right now, like, uh, as far as what we're covering, it's pretty much all COVID-related. Um, we're trying to hit this from every different angle, from photographing um, the testing sites uh, to photographing the businesses that are shut down, the people that are doing takeout. Um, you know, we're running around photographing buildings and schools just to have on file. I mean, and any, anything, that, you know, we're trying to just hit it from every every single angle that we can. Um, we're trying, you know, we're doing sports coverage of how that relates. Um, last last weekend, I spent like two hours uh, going to different sports bars to see how, you know, how their businesses are holding up. You know, once the sports shut down, like, you know, we wanted to see what was going on with them. But I think, I, honestly, I think we did that story way too soon. You know, like we did that, yeah. like right, right when they canceled all the sports. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the thing was, the day that we were doing it was like the day that people celebrating St. Patrick's Day, so there were still people out. Yeah, you know I mean, so I, I think we could have waited at least one more week for that. Um, but I mean, we did it. Um, most of the places we went to were empty. Um, and and at that time, also, like people were still kind of like, oh, this this is fake. This isn't real. You know what I'm saying? Like they yeah. still had that mindset. I had to go out to to the south side of uh of Pittsburgh and photograph St. Patrick's Day and man like all those bars so fucking full like there was lines of people everywhere and I'm just like yo these people are bugging they yeah. tripping you know what I mean it's just, it, it's just it's just wild man yeah man you know um I think you're the first staff photographer that I'm speaking to on the show yeah. and it's funny because I had like with every episode, I have um, a list of questions that I want to ask, but because of the circumstances, you know, I definitely want to get your insight on being a staff photographer during a crisis. I know you mentioned going out to sporting events and bars and things where there's normally people, but now since it's like martial law happening and these places are now shut down, how does that affect your work as a photojournalist? Like, are you supposed to just be out there stomping the streets looking for stories? Are you pitching stories? Are you supposed to be, you know, sheltering yourself as well? Like, you know, what's the rundown of, of how your work has been affected? First, like, first of all, like, you know, the blessing that it is to be a staff for the journalist right now is the fact that I'm actually getting consistent work. You know, every day there's something. I think about, like, all, all my friends and everybody who's freelancers right now who had all all kinds of gigs pretty much closed off and canceled because it is... Um, so that you know, you know, thank God that you know that I'm on a staff, and I, I don't have I don't have to think about that. It, it's unfortunate, and I'm privileged that I can say that. You know, I, I don't have I, I still have work coming in. Um, but as far as like, I mean, everybody right now is pretty much on on some like, if you can find stories, find the stories and work on it, work on it. You know, like I, I look at my schedule, I look at the schedule every day and see what, what's going on, and sometimes like things are added by the minute, by the hour. Um, Cause there's not a lot of things going on right now. Everything's canceled and everything that has been on our, on our schedule 
for the last week is all COVID related. Um, even if you know we're out, you know we're out there feature hunting and finding just something, some wild dart or just life happening, it's gonna come down to it being COVID related right now. Like I ended up, uh, one of my features today was the two young girls exercising in the park. Typically, that's you know during a normal day, it's just two people just who wanted to exercise outside in the park because it's a nice day, but they were out there because uh, the classes, the classes, the classes are canceled and all the gyms are closed, so they have to like exercise outside. Um, you know, like one of my coworkers, he, he photographed, um, this dude who, who's in a, in a wheelchair, not a wheelchair, just one of those motorized wheelchairs cause he was paralyzed, mm-hmm. you know, but dude, his thing was like, you know, I'm outside just getting fresher right now when I can before we get locked down. So like, even when we're outside finding feature and wild dart, you know, during this time, it comes down that it's going to be related to COVID. Wow. So you, you get your assignments based on a schedule or do you, you pitch and go out and chase your own stories, or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. So, you know, typically we have um, the news side or the business side will put in assignments and we'll go out and do that. Um, sometimes our, our editors will find some standalone event that's happening and we'll go out and just make images or videos for, or sometimes we'll go out and find our own stories and we'll pitch it. Um, either we, you know, keep it in-house with the visual set and just do a visual stories or, you know, if, if it's, if it's in the words, merits bringing in a reporter and we'll bring a reporter in and just, um, have somebody write a story for it. Um, but typically it's a combination of both. How much Intel do you get, you know, being that you're a part of a media of a, you know, media company in a big city, how much Intel do you get about like what's going on in the news as far as you know, advance information about how like things going to be shut down and how that's going to affect your work. How much of that early intel do you get? I can't say that we get like, and I don't remember ever getting any inside information about what's going to happen. Um, like typically, if something comes down, our editors here and they tell us. Um, sometimes it's happening, and we hear it at the same time as everybody else does. Um, I don't necessarily think that we, you know, I wish that we would get some secret intel every once in a while, but that. Really doesn't happen. Uh-huh. Um, I, I mean, I mean, it's possible. You know, I can't say that not everybody gets that kind of stuff. I know there's a lot of reporters and journalists who have sources who get who they get their info from. So some people do could get those kind of information, but I don't. It's never it's never been the case for me. I'm sure we jump back and forth in between conversations about COVID and about your work, but um, you know, why don't you tell folks a little bit about your background? I, I know that you and I met in new york city at a photo brigade this my earliest memory of meeting you was at a photo brigade event yeah and i remember my wife and i at the time were working on this portrait project featuring self-identified afro-dominicans right these are afro you know dominicans who identify as black and i recognize their their lineage to the continent, right? And I remember you had yeah. a hat on. I forget. Do you do you remember what the hat, your hat said? It, it was yeah, something about it was blackness. like it was a, a that project hat, and uh-huh. it, just, um, it just said, um, I think it just said, um, like, Apple, we got like it said, rip rep. How do I? I don't know. How to say it. It's like, it just said R E P B O M, and then it had um, the El Ecudo, which is like the, the Dominican symbol, like you know, their national symbol, whatever you yeah. want to call it, and shit on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, man. Um, I, I, mean, I was born in the Dominican Republic, um, grew up there. No, I mean, I didn't grow up there. Like, I was there 
until I was like six, seven years old, and we moved to the states in 1987. Uh-huh. And I don't, you know, I grew up in uh in, in the suburbs. I mean, when we first moved from Dominican Republic, we lived in the Bronx for a few years. Okay. Then we moved up to the suburb of Chewbacca County, and I pretty much grew up there. Okay. Um, I was always an art nerd, man. Like art was my thing. I was always drawing. I was always painting. And then when I got to high school, I started seeing that people were walking around with cameras and shit. And I was like one of those dudes who loved to cut classes. I mean, I was always, <laughs> I was always out. I was always out in the hallways. So I was like, fuck it, you know, I'm into art. I'm, I'm in all these advanced classes. I can take this photography class and just walk around. Like, that's a no-brainer. So, right. you know, when I did it, I fell in love with the shit. You know what I mean? But then I, I kept going with it because, like, I started realizing that I really, I fucking sucked at drawing and painting, man. I was horrible at it. But I had a good eye, so I just, you know, I just kept doing my thing with photography, man. And like after I graduated high school, I, I got one to go. Like I argue, I argue with my mom about this shit all the time. Like I t- when I told her that I wanted to major in photography, she was like, "Nah, you're not doing that." Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like both her and my her, her and my dad were like, "Nah, man. Like we come here for you to just do this. You got to mm-hmm. go out and make money, go into computers and shit." I'm like, "Yeah, I don't want to do that, though." So like, well, we're not paying for school if you don't do something else. So I'm like, "All right, fuck it." So like. I wanted to graphic design because I could still, it was still in the arts. Um, and I hated that shit, man. Like I said, I, I couldn't drop shit. Um, so then I dropped out of school and must have been like 2001 after September 11th happened. Now, this is was, college or this is college? Yeah, this, this, this is college. Okay. Yeah, this is college. Uh, I think it was my, my, what, sophomore year in college, 9 11 happened. Yeah. I was just like, fuck it. Like, I'm going to just take this opportunity to just drop out and just work. I can't go. I used to go. I used to go to school in the city, and I couldn't go into New York City because everything else going on. So I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna drop out." Ah, yeah, yeah, man. So I just, you know, I spent majority of my twenties just, you know, doing blue collar work and anything I could find. I was working in warehouses. Uh, I was working at UPS. I was working for a pharmaceutical company. Um, and then like the last like real job job I had, I was working for um a uh, fashion design company out in New York City mm-hmm. where we designed and installed all the um, storefronts for like all the high-end places like Prada, Ferragamo, like all those fucking people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a, a co-worker of mine who was into photography and that, that kind of sparked me back up into it. I went to my homeboy's house and I was just like, yo, let me use your computer. And I went, and I got on eBay and I bought a $20, $20 Pentax camera, like a P3. Whoa. I started shooting all the time. I was buying, spending mad money on film. And then I got laid off from my job and I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna just take this time off and just, you know, I've been busting my ass for 10 years. Let me go out on a for a while and just go back to school. And that's what I did. And at, at 31, I, I started at community college and then I was just like focused, man. I, I, I took no plan B. I was like, you know, I'm gonna if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, you know. Yeah. Um and then uh, I uh after I graduated from community college, I bounced over to, to California. I lived in Oakland for a while. And I went to school at San Francisco Art Institute. And I was majoring in photography there, but it was more, it was more art-based. Like um, art, art-based photography? Like fine art? Yeah. Yeah. I was, do, I was doing my BFA. My BFA. Okay. You know, like, I didn't really dig it at first, man. My first year there, I, I didn't like it. You know, just because I'm just a 31-year-old kid. I mean, I'm 30, I'm the same kid, but I'm still a kid at 31. And in these classes, and then I had, you know, I was in classes with people who were like 19, 20 years old, and I didn't fit in, mm-hmm. and I felt out of place. Yeah. 
I felt like everybody was smarter than me because I, I had 10 years where I had no kind of schooling and reading, I couldn't write. So it was just, I wasn't liking the band. Um, and then one of my professors was just like, yo, just stick it out. You know, you, you know, you, you got some talent, you're good. Um, next semester, just come back and take Darcy Padilla's class. And I, I took her class, man, and that shit just changed my life, man. Like I, I, I you know, I, I started, you know, just concentrating more on like documentary photojournalism, man. And she, she kind of just put me into shape, man. Like I remember, like the, I remember, like I would never forget the day that I finally kind of like, I was like, right, I got to do this. I, I, I put up my first images from a product I was doing, and she looked at it quietly. She walked back and forth, looking at everything quiet, and then she stepped back and she made me, and she made me stand in front of the class, and she was like. Don't you ever bring that type of shit in my class ever again? She's let me have it, man. Whoa. Y'all like, y'all, I, I skipped my next class. I went home. I, I turned off all the lights. I closed the blinds and I got into bed, man. I was fucking depressed, bro. Whoa. Well, like, that was the last time. What did yeah, you show? I mean, like, Why I, did you say that? It, it was just, I mean, it was just, honestly, man, like, I, I didn't spend any time. I, I was trying to, I was trying to do a project on, on, um, on, on Girls Inc., I was trying to get into Girls Inc. and do do a project on you know what the program was about, but I couldn't really I hadn't really gotten my access yet. So what I did was I photographed around uh, I photographed around um, the vicinity of where they were based at. It was kind of just like photographing what I see, but it was just half-assed, man. And like and I knew it was half-assed, and she just saw right through that shit, bro. But let me tell you that man, that was the last time I ever did any half-assed work ever in my life, man. Oh, nice. So Never you needed again. that. You needed Never that tough again. love. Yeah, man, and that's that's one of the things that I really, really loved about Darcy, man, is that she she never, I mean, she never held it, she never held the tongue, especially like if if she saw something in you, she saw some talent in you, and she really believed in you, she was just that much tougher on you, and and I super and I needed that, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like I I went into school in my head, like I said, with, like with no plan B, I didn't want to have any plan B, like this was always what I wanted to do, uh-huh. and she just. It was basically like, yeah, this is what you want to do. Like, you got to just pretty much toughen the fuck up and just do it. You know what I mean? Like, and that's don't... also like a precursor to, to to the industry, man. Like, when you get yeah. when you become a professional and you're working with editors and publishers and all type of people in this in this industry, not everybody has that nice, gentle approach. Some people are yeah. really harsh and really brash when it comes to like the the criticisms of your work. So she kind of like toughened you up, toughened your skin up a little bit. Yeah, and that's the thing. I'm like, you know, like my, my art school is like, you know, I, I went to a private art school and, and one of the things that I, in my opinion, what what I saw from a lot of the teachers is that, you know, like we're, you know, we would spend mad money to go to the school. So they were kind of like baby you when it comes to these critiques. And they were just like, you know, they wouldn't really, they wouldn't really tell you how it is. And Darcy was just like, nah, man, like you come in here with some you come in here with some bullshit. You were coddled. Yeah, yeah you man. You were coddled. Yeah. Yeah. So help me fill in the gaps a little bit, right? Like you said that yeah. um, you dropped out of school around nine eleven time. Yeah. But then you ended up in San Francisco Art Institute. And, yeah. And then also know that you did some studying in Syracuse. Did you get, did you get go there for your, your for grad school? Yeah, I went to Syracuse for um uh, for grad school. And basically, what happened is like my senior year of um at San Francisco Art Institute, like. I knew that I wanted to be a photojournalist, like I wanted to do this, but I still wasn't prepared to do it. And I didn't know how I was going to go to school. 
like to continue because I, you know, I was paying all this stuff on my own. Yeah, parents you know, weren't. Um, they still so weren't supportive. Hold on one second, bro. My mom. Yeah, actually, speaking of parents, my mom calling me right now. Let me give me one second. Come on. See that my mother patra. Okay. Yo, if your parents ever call you, man, don't ever send a two voicemail over there. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm gonna keep that in the show but, too. <laughs> yeah, that's all. It's all good. <laughs> but yeah, like so, like I, I knew that I wanted to be a the jumps, but I, I wasn't ready. You know, uh, one of the uh, one of the the blessings that happened to me, man, is that you know my senior year of um, undergrad is I started working on a project on black farmers, uh-huh. and you know. I said, you know, I submitted that to the Alexia Foundation and that shit won. And that's the that's how I was able to, you know, continue my education oh. and um and go to, you know, go to Syracuse because um, I wasn't going to be able to do it on my own, man. And, you know, once I got to Syracuse, man, like, you know, I was blessed that, you know, that everybody in that program helped me out, man, from Mike Davis to Bruce, um, Bruce Strong. Um, the Dean, Joe Kaplan, like everybody in that program helped me out, man, like. It, it was kind of like, honestly, I, I, you know, like we, we think about like how hard we work and sometimes we forget the people who helped you get there. Yeah, man. Man. Like, honestly, man, like I, I, I was blessed because, you know, like one of the things, you know, one of the reasons why there's not a lot of black photographers or photographers of color, like in this industry is because we never had the means to, to get into to, yeah, to man. these things. You know what I mean? It's not that easy. And, you know, and, you know, thank God that I fell into a place where people helped me out. And you know, without them, man, like I would, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. You're right. It is easy to forget about all the people that help to make things happen, man. Because photography is not a cheap industry. It's not a cheap profession, and it's not always a profession that pays what it should. So you got this. Um, yeah. You you're always spending money on new gear and new equipment just to make sure your work is at a certain quality level to compete with everybody else in the industry. Mm-hmm. And then you're also competing for jobs that may not pay what it should at this time in like 2020. So yeah, that's definitely a big barrier exactly, of entry man. for, for photographers exactly. of color, man, coming from yeah. like situations where we may not have parents who can support us if this doesn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even then, man, like, you know, if you're lucky enough to get into a job, you know, like, you know, when I started my, when I started this job, it was an entry job, man. I was getting paid fucking peanuts, bro. Like I was getting paid more money than I was doing in New York, you know, when I was freelancing, but man, it, it was, it was tough, bro. Like I, I was, it was like being back at college, like eating canned fucking food and like a cup of noodles and shit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then once my student loans kicked in, I, I went up to them, I was like, yo, um, my fucking student loans are like two G's a fucking month. Like Oof. I can't do this shit anymore, man. You know, um, and you know, thankfully, I you know I, I proved that I can do this job, and they were just like, all right, you know, what I'm saying like, well, you know, we'll hire you full time, and I got hired full time. Nice. But but you know, it was the struggle that that first year, man. It was just you know, I I I would you know I would fucking do groceries like once or twice twice a month and that's what I would eat. I wouldn't go out or anything like that, man, because I was just stacking just to pay off all my bills because the shit wasn't easy, man. I remember when you got the gig at the Gazette and you told folks that you were bouncing, you were leaving the city and going to Pittsburgh. I remember how hard you were working that first year. I remember like you, like that was, um, that was the year that, um, you know, like every other year there was like, huge protests, um, police 
um, yeah, you know, man, um, man. abuse. And uh, I think it was Antoine Rose. Yeah. Right? He, you were covering yeah. uh, the protests um, surrounding the death of Antoine Rose in 2019. And I remember... So, we, 2018. 2018. Yes, yes, 2018. Yeah. And um, just how much you were working. I mean, you were covering protests, but then also covering, like, high school basketball or covering, like, you know, random, like, high school proms and, and stuff like that. And it was, like, the the amount of work that you were pumping out as a staffer was ridiculous, not to mention yeah, you were covering some, like, pretty emotional topics, man. So how was that first year for you, like, going from just being a, a grad student to just, like, thrown into the fire and having to cover all these different things and keep your sanity at the same time? Man, it was like that. My first year here was one of, one of the wildest fucking years ever, man. Like I, I covered absolutely everything you can think of, and like it, it wasn't just the Superman Lance Squad Rose that happened that you know that um that year. Also, like a couple of months later, we had the Tree of Life mass shooting here as well. That's right. Um, so it, it was just it was just he- yeah, it was it was a super hectic year, man. Like I think by the time like no November November December came around. Like there was just days where like I didn't even want to come home because I you know I, I live by myself here so like I would come here and I would just sit here and sit with my thoughts and like you know when like when you you know when you're a creative man we live in our heads man and, and if we don't have an outlet of people to speak to sometimes that like, we go crazy man so like some some days I wouldn't even just come home I would just drive and just listen to music and like at one point things were so like all, all that shit you know it builds up and we don't we don't think about it because we just like push it back and we just keep pumping work. Mm-hmm. And like, man, there was days where I would, you know, where I would go out and I, I would eat, and out of nowhere, I would get emotional. I would just start crying and shit. And 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 I think that one of the one of the things that you know we photojournalists we tend to do is that we tend to drink, and I was fucking drinking heavily, man. Like that's all I was doing. And on my days off, I would just look forward to just grabbing some beer, or, you know, some mm-hmm. whiskey or some shit. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I I I did what you're not supposed to do, and I turned to alcohol, man. Just because I, ha- I didn't have else, anything else to do, man, you know, and shit gets tough, man. It, it's it's not easy, man. I like, you know, like every, when I when I when I'm asked to like, you know, speak to classrooms, classrooms, and you know, to talk to students and shit, I I don't I don't hide that from them, and I tell them how I cope with everything, and and I say it just so you don't make the mistakes that I make, you know. We we, you know, we need to talk to people more, especially you know our loved ones, and just get some of these things out. You know, write more. You know, just think of different, think of different ways to get your mind out of out of all the things that we cover and things we see and things we hear, man. Cause it gets tough, man. Yeah, man. Yo, I, first off, I just want to say thank you for sharing that. You know, that was pretty personal information that you shared. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that turn to alcohol or other vices as a as a form of of healing, as a form of you know therapy as well. It may not be the healthiest thing to choose at the moment, but it's what helps them get through whatever, you know, whatever they're going through. So thank you for sharing that, man. And, um, you know, it's important because I know that you relocated from New York City to Pittsburgh and you're out there chasing uh, the photojournalist dream, but it comes at a cost, you know, you're out yeah, there man. on your own. So, you know, sort of what happened when you got the, the thumbs up that the gig was yours, like, what went through your mind in in deciding to uproot your life in New York and then move to Pittsburgh for this? The money, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it comes down to that, man. It's like, 
you know, I but by the time I by the time I finished up with um with you know, all my school and grad school, I was already like 36, 37, 37. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how fucking old I am now. <laughs> however old I however old I was, I just knew I was done with school and I, and I had, you know, I had student notes coming up and I got bills and shit. I I was cool the first couple of months when I was freelancing in New York because I ended up getting a you know a couple of really really good assignments that put money in my pocket, but that shit only lasts so long, man. Yeah. By, by the time like March and April hit. You know, I had one assignment and I'm like, all right, I got to pay bills, man. So when I got that, when I got the job, it was just more about like, all right, I'm, I'm getting some, because not only am I going to be able to get some consistent work where I can get some consistent pay and be able to pay my bills, but I'm also getting this insurance, which is pretty good for me because, um, I, you know, like I got, <laughs> I have asthma and shit. So like I need to get asthma medicine and all that kind of stuff. And not only that, you know, like. I've never, I've never held a, a uh, an internship or anything like that. Like, like I said, like I, I, I got my, you know, I learned some documentary and photojournalism work when I was out in, um, in my undergrad. But for the most, for the most part, like I got all my teachings in photojournalism in grad school, and that was only about two years. So like I needed more experience. I needed to learn more, more things, more about the business. And, um, you know, being at the paper just kind of instilled that in me. And it's wild because like I spent so much time just saying. You know, like not arrogantly, but just I would say stupidly saying that I don't think I want to work for a newspaper like, you know, and I, I honestly like looking back at it, I, I never understood really how foolish I was saying things like that. I, like, I remember talking to talking to professor over at um, at Syracuse, uh, Seth Gidner, and he's always pushing that, you know, try to get into newspapers and stuff like that because of how much it teaches you. So when I went back and I saw him um, when I defended my master's thesis last last year. You know, I told him, I'm like, yo, Seth, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you're right. You know, like working in a newspaper just teaches you so much that you don't really think about when you're out there freelancing and going to school. Mm-hmm. So like, it, it's been a blessing, man. Like I've learned so much working for a, a daily newspaper because I was always stuck working and just using one lens. Like my, my go-to lens for like five years was a 35 millimeter. Okay. Um, and now like, I can't see myself not having a 24 to 70 or 70 to 120. Also, it's like one of the things when you go to assignments, sometimes you'll have like two or three assignments a day and you got to go in there and wrap these things up quick. Yep. So I've, I've learned to go into situations, just take like five minutes to just sit and look around and know what I'm going to photograph already. Um, and it's also helped me become a better editor as well, because like I'm shooting every day and I don't have to send like 20 images to an editor. I could send like three or four and that's and would be good money. So I have to pick my best three or four images, but I'm not only looking at my images, but I'm also seeing what my coworkers is doing and what, what they're sending and, you know, how they're working. And that's just been a blessing. And I, I work with some super incredible, talented people, man. And it, it's just been a blessing being around and just seeing them and just growing. Man, I, I, I know that right now that there's not a lot of newspaper work out there, man, but it's like, if you're if you're if you're listening to this and you're you know you're still in college, like apply to the internships, man. Like apply to every single one of the joints. Um, it don't matter if they're like in the, the deep south. I mean, it does matter if they're in the deep south Kentucky and what you look like and stuff. But uh, <laughs> for real. <laughs> but you know, what I'm saying like apply to the internships, man. I, I, you know, honestly, I really wish that I, I would have had opportunity to apply. You know, to apply more or. When I was in school, I don't, you know, yeah, man, it's, it's been a blessing, man. Yeah. But you know, all things happen in, in the time that they're supposed to, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah. speaking about the talent, the talented photographers that you work with, uh, you were part of the 2019 Pulitzer Prize winning team. 
yeah. on the Gazette, right? Yeah. Dude, so what the fuck, man? Like, yo, you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. Bro, like, you know what shit is wild is that, you know, I'm like, we got, we got, you know what I'm saying? Like, we got a little secret group chat going on. And like, I forget which, I forget which one of y'all people's like, was like, yo, get your, get your Pulitzer speech ready. Like when I first told you guys I was coming here. <laughs> so like for this shit to happen is just wild. But I mean, but to be honest with you, man, it's like, it's, it's, it's a bittersweet because, you know, you know, like the reason why, you know, we were awarded is because 11 people were killed. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So, it, you know, like thinking back to that, it's just like, damn, like I'm always going to have this attached to me because because of this unfortunate incident. Like there's 11 people who whose family have never going to see them again. You know what I mean? So it's it's tough thinking about that sometimes, man. But yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I think that one of the things that that makes it OK for, you know, for, for me to even feel like, all right, like accomplished for that is, just, you know, like since since it happened, I've I've seen. You know, I've ran and I photographed. I'm not I ran. I ran into some of the some of the survivors and some of the first responders, and they've always been cool and really appreciative of the work that we've done. I remember Rabbi Myers. You know, he was just like, you know, you guys did your job and you guys did it well. Um, you guys did what the city needed needed us to do. You know what I'm saying? So like, they've always been appreciative of the work we've done. So I, but honestly, man, it's just, it's just a wild thing to have that to have that attached. You know. Um, and you know when it happened, you know not one person in the in the newsroom did not want to work. Everybody dropped what they were doing and went to work. And you know if we were out in the field somewhere, and there were reporters or photographers who weren't doing anything, they were running, you know, like coffee to us and food and stuff to us. Like everybody just everybody grinded for like a good two weeks, man. Like straight, we did nothing but work, man. You volunteered to work any day off, you know, to do whatever. Yeah, I it mean, was, it was a wild day, man. I'm I'm glad that you sobered up the moment because you know while I was celebrating you and your Pulitzer Prize, you brought it back to the root of why you won that prize. And, you know, definitely it feels like most Pulitzer Prizes are awarded to like some real traumatic shit, right? Yeah, man. Um, but I think that a testament, that is a testament to the humanistic nature of photojournalism and the quality of work that you and your team put into covering this story and as and truthful and honest. Yeah, I mean, that, possible, that's the thing too, know? is like, you know, like, you know, what we, how do I say this without sounding like, not putting anybody down. It's like, let me let me read the exact quote that the you know that that they had said because I don't want I don't want I don't want to mess this quote up. Who who's um, um who's so, quoting um, this? The, the, the Pulitzer um committee. Okay. Um, our work was immersive and compassionate coverage, and like that that word compassionate that word compassionate just always sets into me. Like, and I think of you know I think of days you know covering that, you know like I would go to vigils. On memorials sometimes and I, honestly I would go there and I wouldn't photograph man like I would just sit there and just and just give people the space to grieve I always just like tried to give people an out of whether it was okay to photograph at times so they, and they you know they didn't, if they didn't want me to photograph I, I never did yeah. you know what I mean like cause it, it was a tough time man like you know people were hurt people the city was hurt you know I, I wasn't I wasn't thinking of, I wasn't thinking when I was out there photographing like oh I'm gonna do this so I can get that I was just like I wanted to document what was happening to the city man but I, I did it I did it in a way that I thought that not just me but also my coworkers. like we did it in a way that was respectful you know we wanted to inform everybody about what, what was happening here I mean we did it we did it through a lens of empathy which is what this job is about it should be about yeah man I mean much respect 
much respect to you and your your coworkers for for the amount of work that you put into that, man. That's I can imagine going through like your first year, right? This is all within your first year. Yeah, within my like, first year, man. I got I got the illest fucking crash course in photojournalism ever, man. Dude, we were like, yo, man, take yourself to a spa, bro. Like, I remember the pictures were popping up with you in them. Like this during the protest, like you crouched down behind a car or something, and we're like, yo, ain't ain't, ain't that Mike right there? Yeah, man. <laughs> you know, he's his shit burning in the background, and Mike is behind a car. <laughs> Photograph you like, dude, man. You need, you need, you need to rest, bro. You I remember my mom wilding out one day. She was just like, "You don't have to be in the front of the, all those police officers." And I'm like, "Yo, mom, this is my job. Yeah, this is what I do." She's like, "That's why we ain't want you to do photography in the first place." <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 commendable, bro. So, um, you touched on this briefly, um, about the work you did involving the black farmers. Yeah, can you speak on that project, like? I, I, one thing that I don't know if you hear it in the background, um, my son is upstairs stomping or, or yeah. something, you know, and since we're, I'm just putting it out there for the audience, man, this COVID-19 got us all going to stir crazy. So if you hear that's like some a, screaming. That just reminded me of that dude who was giving that press conference and his daughter. Oh, yeah, popped in. Right? Yo, for real. Yo, listen, this is a home-based show. Right, is his homegrown, so you're gonna hear some. You're gonna hear family bickering in the background. I mean, I'm gonna try to minimize it as, as best as possible, but this is what it is, y'all. So if you tuned in, man, know to expect some crying occasionally in the background. All right, we, but we're trying to make it work. Yeah, you know. So we speak to a lot of young photographers who are trying to find their footing in this industry, and they're trying to figure out how to put stories together and pitch stories and trying to validate if the story is worthy of telling, right? And how did you go from buying this Pentax camera for $20 and going around shooting and then eventually landing on this project about black farmers? Like, what was that process like for you to find this project? And then what were some of the steps it took for you to make this project happen? Yeah, so like before, before I started that project, when I lived in Oakland, I lived in basically a food desert. There really wasn't a lot of places we didn't get fresh foods from. Um, like there's a lot of farmers markets and stuff like that out, out in Oakland and stuff like that, but not in there where it was at. So a lot of people were getting their their fruits and vegetables and whatnot from like you know the lo- local stores out there. And at the time, you know, my my girl has um she has celiac disease, so she has to eat stuff that that has no gluten in it. So we always have to go out different places to find fresh foods to eat and stuff like that and stuff that would not get her sick because that was the first time i ever heard heard about a food desert i didn't hear you know where i lived at in the suburbs you know like the grocery stores right there and they have all kinds of shit there but i didn't know that there was places like that in america so that shit blew my mind so i started doing a story on unhealthy eating and i found this one organization where they specifically got you know they taught folks how to how to farm and how to grow their own foods and stuff like that but they also had farmers markets where some of the products they got, they specifically got it from black farmers. Mm. So that should be treatment. I'm like, there's black farmers out here. They're like, yeah. So they introduced me to 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 this one um this one lady called Gail Myers, and she ran an organization called um oh, Farms to Grow, where it specifically worked with black farmers, where they, she would get their products and they would do farmers markets, but she would also help them find grants and stuff like that. Um, so once I found her and I, you know, and I met her, we started, you know, she talked, tell me about the, the organization. After that, I spent six months, bro, just doing research and just reading as much as I could on, on, on for this project. 
Like I didn't just pick up, I didn't just pick up a camera and just go out and just try to find people to photograph. Like I wanted to be an expert. So I read everything that I could. I watched every YouTube video I could, and I listened to every interview I could, just so I can know as much as I could um, about about the about the project before I even took a single picture. So then when I thought that I was ready, I reached back out to Gail, and you know it just so happened that when I reached out to her, she just had a farmer who just reached out to her about some help. So I rode out with her to um to his farm out in out in um in Bakersfield, which was about like four hours away from where I was living at. And that's you know, Mr. McGill, he was uh he used to be a, a truck driver, um, but his family has always, you know, has always been in farming, raising pigs and stuff like that. And in the eighties he had lost uh about three hundred and sixty acres of, of farmland. Um from what from what he told me, him and his partner, you know, they their land was going to foreclosure and you know, they applied for a loan to, you know, to be able to pay off the taxes or whatever. And he had told me that his partner had made kind of like a handshake deal with like the head dude on the, on the FD lending, lending agency. And when it came time to vote on the, on the loan, they denied the loan. The head guy, he ended up buying the property and selling it for a profit. Okay. So, you know what I'm saying? So he was just fucked out of that, out of that man. He was the part, Mr. McGill was a part of the Pickford lawsuit where black farmers sued the USDA and the government for, uh, racist lending, lending practices and he ended up getting like 50 G's for it but you know when you're a farmer man that's just not enough especially the land is already taken so yeah exactly because you know one of the one of the things one of the one of the problems that he continues to face is that he doesn't make enough profit to qualify for a loan he doesn't he doesn't have enough land to qualify for a loan he basically got fifty thousand dollars for a bunch of land that would have earned him a whole lot more exactly okay. exactly Exactly. And, and, and that's, you know, that's been the case throughout, you know, throughout American history when it comes to black farmers, man, like they've always been cheated out of the land and killed for the lands. Like I remember reading this one quote, one quote that always stuck to me that said, if you want to trace the lands that were stolen from black people in America, all you got to do is trace, you know, the lynching patterns. Mm. So, you know, that shit always stuck to me, man. Like I remember one time Mr. Miguel telling me a family friend of his, down, I forget where it was, but it was down south. The the neighbor wanted one of homeboys, um, one of his pigs. So the guy ended up just walking over and shooting him and just taking the pigs and just nothing ever happened, you know, things like that, man. Um, I mean, nowadays, um, back in like the 1920s, man, like black farmers made up about 14% of the farmers in America. And now they're, they're down to like less than 1%. I think it's interesting when folks approach a personal project and it's actually based on something personal, right? So you discovered this project because your girl suffers from, uh, what was the disease? Uh, celiacs. Celiacs? Yeah, yeah. Celiacs disease. And you wanted to do research on cleaner eating. And then yeah. you come across all of this information. How did you know that this was a good idea, that this was something that you felt was a good idea? One, was a good idea, and two, that you felt, you were the right person to photograph it. Prior to that, whenever I heard of a farmer, I mean, I just always thought I was a white dude running around in like in a John Deere tractor and shit like that. Like I never pitched like a you know somebody black like farming. I don't know why. I don't know why I never thought about that. Like why, when I hear farming, I never thought about black farming. So that just like it really intrigued me. Then you know, once I, once I started doing the research more and more, it just became it kind of like. I became obsessive over it. Like I knew that I wanted to do this. 
And you know, I'm I'm, I'm into farming. Like, I love land. I love animals and stuff like that. Like I remember being in DDR and going into like my family's, um, my family friends like farms, like sugarcane farms and stuff like that. Like I remember going to, um, going to farms like during the summer and having to wake up hella early to go down the river to fucking, you know, get water and shit. It's it's just it was just something that um that called to me, man. It's in your blood, I mean, bro. I, yeah, man. You know, I mean, I come from an island, man. So like, I'm used to just like seeing shit, you know. Um, and then as far as like, how do I, how did I know I was the right person for it? This is always a tricky subject, man, because you know you can't tell some, you can't tell somebody that they're not the right person to do something. Like anybody can do a project, but are they the right person? Sometimes, like, yeah, it's a tricky subject. You know what I mean? Like, I remember, I remember telling somebody like. Um, not that long ago, um, they, they were just like, well, it, I remember they were, they were saying like, oh, you know, if you find a project, it's your project. And in my head, I was just like, I told them, I was like, yeah, just because a project falls in your lap doesn't mean that you're the right person for it. You know what I mean? Very true. I don't, I don't know. It, 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 that's, it, that's become like a, trick, a tricky subject to talk about, man. Like, you know? Well, not, okay. So it doesn't have to be from a place of like ownership in a sense yeah. or, or, or right to yeah. photograph but a project that like the light bulb goes off and you say yeah this is something that I'm going to do because I have a particular viewpoint on this like it's more of a um I guess a spiritual you know light bulb that goes off that says yeah I'm I'm going to photograph this as uh, instead of it being more like a a a righteousness or entitlement yeah yeah know? yeah yeah I feel you and I'm still cool with Mr. McGill. Like I haven't seen Mr. McGill in what, like I'm going five to six years, but I speak to him all the time. Like last time I spoke to him was like last month. Oh, nice. um, I speak to him like, he, yeah, I, either I call him or he calls me like at least once a month. Oh, that's um, great, man. You know? Yeah. I mean, and he, he's still, he's still farming, man. But like, you know, he, he be having some wild dreams, man. Every time I talk to him, he was like, man, I just need a million dollars, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, bro, me, me too, man. No. <laughs> I wish somebody could just walk up to me and give me a bill. <laughs> but I mean, like, I, you know, he's in his 70s, man. And all he, all he wants to do is just farm, man. Like, he doesn't want to do anything else but just, like, chill with his pigs, man. That's all he wants to do. Wow, man. I mean, when you find your calling, you find it, right? Going back to personal projects, right? Like, do you consider it done? Is that project done? Or when you look at it, like, does it feel like it's a completed piece? Nah, or do you man. feel like there's still some work that you can extract from it? No, nah, man, like, I, honestly, like, when I first started that, man, I was still a baby in this business, man. Like, I know a whole lot more now. And yeah. Like, I really wish that I can go back back into it. Like, the last time I photographed for that project was a couple of years ago. I met um homeboy down south, um, Julius Tillery, who's a cotton farmer. And, you know, his family that been, you know, has, has been going cotton since, like, the late 1800s. You know I mean, like, his his uh, his great-grandfather was, like, the first Tillery out of slavery who was, who was farming cotton, and they're still doing it now. And man, like, and he, he's, he's, he's a big dude in the ag world down, down in North Carolina, man. Like he's a young cat. Um, he started his own business called uh, Black Cotton where, you know, um, he uses cotton as kind of like decorations and decor for, for houses and stuff like that. Like he's, he's trying to change the narrative about what it means to be black and be a black, uh, uh, a black farmer who farms cotton. Yeah. And you know, like, you know, the, the thing with all personal projects, man, is that they take money and I don't have their, yeah can yeah. actually go out there and just you know, do my thing, man. And like, I really wish that I could, but th that, that whole area where, where he's living at, man, I would just sort of just spend like six months 
out there because it's like a whole slew of black farmers out there. Everybody just, you know, farming cotton and soybean. Um, but honestly, man, if I, if I could just get somebody to fund me to just travel the country to support a great black farmers, man, I, I'm with it. I'm so with it. I mean, it's a, it's a dope project, man. I actually want to see yeah. some more frames from it. Um, hopefully you can share a link to um, where those that project exists so um, people out there can can view it. You know, I think I think it's dope. What do you think is next in store for you? Oh, man. Um, I have no idea, man. Honestly, like I really want to get back into doing personal projects and I really haven't haven't done any. I haven't started any in a while. Um, probably just because like it's been it's been wild in Pittsburgh, man. And then also part of that, to be honest with you, man, like I I, I kind of like look down on myself just because I feel like I've gotten lazy. Mm-hmm. I've gotten so comfortable, so used to just having an assignment picked out for me that I can go out and do that. I haven't thought about it's almost kind of like I, I, I regress on how to start a personal project again, like you know. But to be honest with you, man, there's days where where like I don't feel that I'm in love with this as much as I used to back in the day. With photography? Um, and you know, like, yeah, man, like, you know how we are creators, man. We get in our heads, man. And once we get in our heads, it's just fucking like, it's just nuts. You know what I mean? Yeah, we can create, we can create some crazy scenarios, right? Yeah, man. And and it's like, we tell ourselves all the time, you know, the one, the number one rule when you're a photojournalist, man, is like, don't compare yourself to other people. And every day I'm like, fuck, man, like, I can't do what this person is doing. Like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm just an average, I'm just an average dude who got lucky. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, So I'm like, I have a lot of, I have ideas in my head that I haven't really fully started. I need to flesh out more. I need, I need to, I need to find something and do something that to, to get my creative juices back, man. Like I love taking pictures. Like, you know, I'm blessed that, you know, I, I can wake up every day and take, you know, make images, you know, do, but I, I just need something, man. I need a spark. Yeah, man. And, you know, you shoot full time. Right. Yeah. I don't yeah. I don't shoot full time. And so I can imagine like days where I have like when I, I do shoot all day. Yeah. I can't imagine like finding time to shoot a personal project yeah. because, yo, sometimes my hand clenches like from having mm-hmm. my, my hand and my finger in that position, like the shutter position. It yeah. just kind of like clenches up. Right. And, you know, it gets a little sore. And I can't imagine shooting shooting the way you shoot. Where you shoot like yeah. three different projects a day, in, and and then finding time to shoot on the weekend. Like for me, yeah. photography is sort of like that outlet where I don't shoot as often as I would like. So when I come up with a personal project, it's like, oh shit, I'm excited to go shoot that because mm-hmm. I don't shoot on the regular. So I can only imagine the effort it takes to say, all right. Fuck it. This weekend I ain't doing shit, but shooting my own thing, you know. Yeah, and when I when I got here, man, like my first my first couple of months when I got here, man, I was fucking hungry, bro. I was hungry, so I was out, you know, I was out doing my regular assignments, and then on my days off, I was off trying to work on my own personal stuff, man. And I burned myself out super quick, man. I got to a point where I was just like, "Yo, what am I doing? Like, I'm not taking care of myself, man." You know, and, and then that was what that was around. June of 2018, when I felt myself burning myself out, and I was wanted to take a break, and then like, you know, we had the whole Antoine, you know, Antoine Rose was murdered, man, and it just shit just got crazy out here, and I just never stopped working since then, man. Hopefully, next time we speak, you'll be able to share some info about like a new personal project that you're approaching, or or hopefully you you able to um, 
get back at the Black Farmers Project because it, it it sounds like it's a project that has very long legs, man. Like it, it, it yeah, it's man. a lot of moving parts with that, and I'm I'm sure there are plenty of stories that can still be told around that topic of I mean, black yeah. farmers. It's gonna be it's just gonna be tough though because honestly, man, this fucking whole COVID coronavirus is gonna I know. Be, it's gonna be eating us for fucking months, man. It, this is this is all we're gonna eat and breathe for a little while, man. Unfortunately, man. Yeah, I know. Which makes it like even better case to get out to the fucking farms because everybody's all isolated and shit. Yeah, yeah, and and you won't have to deal with the crowds of people. Word, right? Word. So listen, man. Yo, Mike, it's been dope chopping it up with you. I'm glad we finally made it happen. Yeah, man. I appreciate you taking the time and, and dropping some some jewels and sharing some insight, sharing your story with folks. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell folks where they can find you on on online on social media yeah um you can find me on instagram and twitter at m santiago photos um it's the same handle for both of them um and if you want to check out my um my website is the same thing as santiagophotos.com um you know like one of the one of the things that that i never shy away from is just like can every, if anybody ever wants to reach out or just you know wants to chop it up and just talk to me and ask me any questions man feel free like i remember being a student and reaching out to some folks and just being surprised that they hit me back. And I'm like, oh, shit. And I'm saying it's like, I pay that shit forward. So if anybody ever like wants to just reach out, just feel free to reach out, man. All right. You heard it from the man himself. Reach out to that dude, man. And, and, and yo, seriously, for the for you young photographers, young folks out there listening, when someone says, like, hit me up, ask me questions, don't be shy, like, don't be shy. Listen to them and, and reach out and try to follow up whenever you get the opportunity. All right, man. So, Mike, appreciate you, bro. And, you know, we're going to keep chopping it up, man. Be safe out there. This is Michael Santiago, and you're tuning into the Black Shutter Podcast. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who tuned into this episode. Thank you for listening. The Black Shutter Podcast is hosted by me, Idris Talib Solomon. To subscribe to the Black Shutter Podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. When you get there, show us some love by dropping a five-star rating or leaving a review. This will help with our rankings, which essentially helps more black photographers get exposure. Make sure to check us out online at blackshutterpodcast.com to read the show notes, learn more about our guests, and check out some of their work. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Peace. Until next time. <laughs>